0: Hello and welcome to Public Health Disrupted with me, Zand van Tulleken
1: and me, Rochelle Burgess Zand is a doctor, writer, and TV presenter, and I'm a community health psychologist and associate professor at the UCL Institute for Global Health.
0: Now this podcast is about public health.
1: More importantly,
0: it's about the systems that need disrupting to make public health better. So join us each month as we challenge the status quo of the public health field, asking what needs to change, why, and how to get there.
1: In today's episode, we're exploring the impact of social media, specifically on children and teenagers. Social media is a huge part of our lives, but growing fears around the way it affects our mental health is fueling debate that it is bad for our children and young people. It can lead to anxiety, depression, difficulty with social skills, body dysmorphia, low confidence, and there are very real risks relating to children and young people's safety.
0: And what is the evidence on all of these issues? The trouble with this stuff is that social media is still a relatively new phenomenon. And so we have limited research to call upon to help us understand its impact. The evidence base is convoluted and inconclusive. Many studies are subject to confirmation bias, methodological pitfalls, which makes it difficult to accurately ascertain the relationships between social media and young people's mental health. Well, here to help guide us through all this are Dr. Chris Bagley and Ella Gregory.
1: Dr. Bagley is an educational psychologist. He's a lecturer, tutor, and doctorate research supervisor at the UCL Institute of Education, or how everybody here lovingly knows it it as IOE. That's where I often try to go and hang out anyway. (laughs) He also works for South Gloucestershire Council. His core motivation is to co-develop psychologically healthy education systems alongside young people, families, professionals, and creative thinkers. You can find a really interesting article he wrote called How Technology is Changing Society and Manipulating Our Children in a 2019 edition of the psychology and mental health journal Psychreg. Chris is also the director of research at States of Mind, an organization that provides young people with the psychological skills, knowledge, and self-awareness that's required for them to thrive in the world. He works with an innovative team of practitioners dedicated to gaining young people's insights about education and placing their voices at the center of reform. Our second guest is
0: Ella Gregory. Now, Ella has personal experience with child and adolescent mental health services and as a result is dedicated to reforming approaches towards mental health. Along with Chris Bagley, Ella is also involved with the organization States of Mind and in her role as the organization's social development lead. She's co-created an online well-being curriculum. She's assisted in its implementation in schools and housing groups. She's interested in the intersections of well-being, spirituality, religion and nature and spends much of her time in community growing spaces. Ella believes that transforming how we talk about and view our minds and feelings can influence the rest of our lives by helping us to connect, solve problems and thrive and she's written a brilliant essay which is on the States of Mind website. Ella can I start with you because I I found your essay so uh, kind of interesting to get the, the interior view of the experience of, of health and healthcare, how much should we be worrying about the impact of social media on our children? Is it that bad? Do you think in some extent that, that the ways which parents and schools react to their children's use of social media tend to create more anxiety and moral panic? And I should say, I have a 13-year-old son I feel very uh, muddled about his use of social media and my interactions with him on it.
2: Yeah. Okay, so I want to start off by just putting it, sort of laying it out there that, yeah, I'm coming into this podcast from a very sort of lay perspective on social media, have the perspective of someone who has used it, who no longer uses it, who knows many people who use it, and was born in 2002. I just forgot when I was born there. So I've grown up on Instagram, probably started using Instagram when I was about 13 or 14. If anybody should understand it, it should be my generation. We are the primary users. And yet I completely agree and I feel muddled always about it. I have read so many articles. I've watched The Social Dilemma. I've yeah, seen all of the kind of hysteria about how you know, we need to be terrified about social media. And then I've also seen the other side of it that says that we are sort of not making a big deal out of nothing, but that this hysteria isn't necessarily founded on genuine evidence and experience. And that actually there are some groups of young people who find social media immensely helpful For one example, I'm mixed race. And one of the ways in which that helps is that there are organisations online specifically for groups of people who are of mixed heritage so that we can navigate the confusing world of belonging to two different races, of feeling polarised, of not knowing quite where we belong. But in my personal experience very difficult because I don't want to make a definitive statement because yeah social media is it's not one thing or the other I think the easiest way for me to describe it is it's reflective of the time that we live in now and in that sense there's some stuff about social media that is beautiful like things I've just mentioned and there are other parts of social media that are why I left because eventually I just felt utterly overwhelmed with a sort of deluge of what I didn't feel was a true reflection of people's lives right. and a feeling of needing to measure up to a standard that just wasn't true. And eventually I thought, I don't want to do that anymore. I don't, I don't want to engage in something that feels ultimately performative. It's a really hard decision to make, actually, to disconnect from something that every single other person I know my age is on.
1: What an opening thought, first of all. I mean, there's so much in there and it's incredibly profound. There's one thing you said that really also embodies the way I feel about social media sometimes, that it, it's this imperfect mess that actually reflects the imperfectness of society, in a lot of ways. So I can totally feel your like, hesitance to say it's all one thing or another. And that's definitely just how the world is. So it becomes a, a reflection of our, our times, but also somehow a false reflection of it. So it just sort of amplifies certain aspects of, of life, of personhood, of, of society that can make it really heavy and hard for people. I mean, I very much have found social media to be a place that is uplifting, but also can be so violent. I definitely connect to this idea of online safety and the need to create safety because it does feel very unsafe at times. How have we not figured it out yet? (laughs) How have we, you know, why are we still struggling with making online spaces safe
3: for people? Chris, what do you think? I think one of the reasons might be the unbelievable amplification of what would ordinarily be defined historically as normal human behavior. And you guys have touched on this already. So it would not be the case, generally speaking, looking back through history that you would have thousands of people with potentially completely wildly differing opinions commenting on the same person's statement. So if you think about the level of intensity that comes with that, that would never have existed, even when I was growing up, and I'm 39, I own in that, I'm 40 in June, so I'm definitely not a digital native, inverted commas, like Ella is, who was born into a world where there were phones. But I think even when, when I was growing up, there was no opportunity, and I'm sure everyone else would agree with this, who's a bit older than Ella maybe, for you to s- sit on a screen or in a space and react Alongside thousands of people from completely different headspaces, different backgrounds different countries different ethnicities different political beliefs and ideologies on the same statement made by another human being and that to my mind as a psychologist that brings out huge complexity around the impact on the person who maybe made an original comment and we have things like Twitter pylons that's become a word hasn't it used in common parlance about social media which could never have existed. And we have also opportunities for people to, as Ella said, flip that around and develop really unbelievably beautiful, diverse communities that were never possible before. And things like the Me Too movement, for example, and Black Lives Matters, I think arguably, and I certainly see evidence of this, grew to such an extent and were able to have the impact they did because of social media. So. It's great that we've started with this, because I think this is probably the most complex part of it, actually, is the binary that's potentially created by social media and the fact that it recreates humanity in a different space. And that's probably why we haven't figured it out yet, because it seems very, very complex. And it might be one of those things that takes generations to figure out, because this is like a, it's like an alien life form, in my view, and something that's going to take a long time to get to grips with. And that's why the research evidence is so muddled. And that's why people's conceptions of it is so muddled too, I think.
2: I think that the, the conversation could maybe be less about whether or not social media is good or bad and more about how can we have insightful and deep connections and conversations using this new form, exactly as we do in, you know, magazines and books and journals and how we can also have maybe, I think sometimes when we talk about social media, it's very easy to just think about Um, I'm trying to think of the sort of, I guess, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok now, isn't it? TikTok's the new big one. Um, Facebook, you know, we we zoom in on the big players. And actually, there's room, I think, to also talk about different forms, decentralized social medias that are out there, maybe less used, well definitely less used, but that offer different ways of having conversations. There's one that's all about coming together over books and writing and things like Tumblr. There's just, there's much more room for nuance in the conversation than it feels like we have.
3: I think it's really important what Ella said there around, particularly with young people, which is obviously the focus of today, that we actually sit down and talk with them and have an honest, genuine, open conversation about how they're interacting with social media and digital technology. One of the things we've done at States of Mind and one of the things I did a few years ago with about 400 young people in primary and secondary schools is just sat down with them and said, there's this thing, social media. Let's talk about it. And what we find when we do that is actually young people I've certainly met, and I think Ella would probably agree with this, tend to have a very nuanced conception of social media and having a lot of the thoughts Ella is having because they've had a decade to think about this since they started using their phones at 12, 13, 14. They can recognize, in my experience, working with hundreds of young people explicitly that young people who are vulnerable offline tend to be vulnerable online. That's really key. And the vast majority of them are highly aware of what the possible impacts of social media can be if you overuse it or you use it in the wrong way. And for me, I think the conversation around safety, going back to the thing you said a minute ago, guys, is more around some of the external operators who are working in and around social media who are attempting to convert our attention into dollar signs and sterling rather than being at risk of being online groomed or anything like that and when you speak to young people about that almost exclusively they'll roll, roll their eyes at you and go well I just block them bruv I'm not stupid so I think for me in terms of safety that's my angle in terms of helping and thinking with young people about it and that tends to be in those conversations something I I add in because it's not always something that part that the young people are as familiar with whereas they are very knowledgeable about how to block people. While you were talking Chris something that just
1: really struck me that I think about a lot in the work I do with young people is there's always a huge underestimation of young people's agency right their agency and their power their ability to understand how to navigate their world. If we were to drive our efforts to sort of make social media a safer space with young people's agency at the forefront. I mean, I'd love to hear from Ella as well on this. What what does that look like? How does it sort of change maybe how social media is organized or how how we think about this notion of policing it. I'm doing air quotes. You know, this idea that do we even have to or do we need to enable environments differently
3: i can say what our approach is at states of mind actually here and ella can build on this and i think what we tend to do is when we're conducting research we would always use a participatory action research approach which positions young people as active co-researchers in whatever we're doing they're never positioned as subjects or objects of the study and they co-create everything with generally myself and usually another doctorate student who's on the educational psychology degree at ioe and we're really hoping over the next few years to do something around social media and to answer your question Rochelle, what could that look like well we certainly perceive that if you want to have an impact on another human being's capacity to feel able to act in the world and to have agency and to behave with autonomy in a space that is of ever increasing complexity because of the internet age. That that's best moderated through human relationships and not through didactic direct instruction. So at the moment, schools will stand in front of children and they will tell them, these are all the things that are bad about social media. Social media leads to XYZ, completely non-evidence-based and the young people will roll their eyes, shrug their shoulders and ignore it because they know it's absurd. But if you sit down and provide space for young people in an education environment and have the confidence to be vulnerable and let them speak and let them explain how the social media world impacts upon them. They will then be able to learn together. They'll feel legitimized in speaking their mind. And they're more likely to share things when they are going badly or negatively for the more vulnerable children who are vulnerable off and online. And then you can co-construct ways of working as an education institution and as a group of human beings, adults and young people that allow people to interact with these systems and these media forms in a way that is pro-social and really helps them to get the best out of it and for it to be a positive experience that helps them to flourish as a person. And I think we've got to get away from, as a society generally, telling children who to be, how to think and what they are, because particularly with something like social media and we're all teenagers, Ella still is a teenager, you know, if an adult tells you to do something, you're not going to do it. <laughs> you know, you're very likely to then do the opposite thing. If you talk to someone about something, then you might get somewhere. So I guess if I was to summarize in a sentence, it's really about talking and listening and being together and thinking together rather than telling. And I think social media conversations and helping people to think about it, that's the best approach. And I think but I think Ella would agree with me here as well we would argue at States of Mind that that's probably the best approach to solving any problems
2: yeah really I mean I think you said it quite perfectly Chris but it's this sort of you know this little pithy pithy slogan of like doing with not to you know rather than trying to also like almost solve social media for young people you know we're we're not going to be able to do that without working with young people and asking them well what do you need what would make this a good experience for you? And I think something that um, we do have to be careful with, which I definitely have noticed in the sort of few bits of research that I have read around social media is how the questions are framed. And often they are framed in a very negative way. And I think that's, that's something that's really important to kind of pick up on is well, what questions are we asking and what answers are we expecting And how can we step back from the answers that we're expecting and just allow the people who use social media the most to tell us what they actually use it for? So there was a UNICEF report on, I think it's specifically health and social media. And I went into it really with my own assumptions that for most of the youth interviewed in this report that it was going to have a negative experience on their mental health. And actually the biggest thing that they pulled up across the board was disinformation. That was the biggest worry. It wasn't and, and I do think part of this is our conception of mental health is so very limited and constrained that it almost becomes meaningless because you can't isolate. Well, I don't believe you can isolate, you know, how you feel in your mind from how you feel in your body from what you consume as well, your diet. You know, I, I believe that that includes what we consume on social media. That includes our our doom scrolling, which is a strange new word. Yeah, another new word that's become you know common upon us, especially over the COVID pandemic. And I think there's something really interesting here about yeah, what questions are we asking as well, and how can we go into these conversations with young people with other social media users? Without letting our biases, and this is something that I have to do, because my personal bias is quite anti-social media. I don't use it anymore. I don't like it. I didn't have a great experience with it. But, you know, if I'm going in and I'm talking to other young people, then I'm not trying to push my own agenda. And Chris touched on this, is that this is what the companies are doing. The companies behind social media are pushing an agenda. And that agenda is that our attention is monetizable it's hard to know what is kind of you know what's really grounded and what is sort of hysteria but that for me that's what scares me and that in my view that's not social media that's neoliberalism and that's capitalism and that's going to find a way to do whatever it does on whatever medium we have we can't sort of just try and you know stick a little plaster over a much Bigger problem, and that much bigger problem is that profit is put over people, and that affects all areas of our public health. And of course, it seeped into our social. It can't not seep into social media. I think we're just seeing it, as we mentioned right at the beginning, in a magnified and really intense way. Actually,
1: look, Ella, can I just say that you're a genius? Please put that in the podcast. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> Look, I'm now fangirling over you, so just hopefully it doesn't make you too uncomfortable. <laughs> but I just love when anybody can just sort of say say it as it is. The problem with social media, the problem with everything, I'm just going to say it, is capitalism. Capitalism is going to do its thing. It's always going <laughs> to do its thing. It's always going to find its space, its way to monetize and marketize our daily experience. So ultimately... That changes the relationship. That becomes the sort of the vector in the process through which Our relationship to anything in society becomes mediated. I think this hysteria about sort of the negativity within social media is actually a reflection of what the monetization of social media has led to, actually. Like the things that get amplified, get amplified because an algorithm is driving it in a certain direction, right? And these algorithms work and exist because they're on a path to trying to sort of make money or drive the production or consumption of things through the existence of this algorithm, right? So we need to spend a lot more time, and I think this is, Chris, what you were saying, talking about that relationship as well. Call it what it is, Like Call a spade a spade. This is the bad side of capitalism.
3: There's a counter argument to that though, Rochelle. And I, as part of my work, I've spoken to people at Google and YouTube and Facebook about the algorithm and their perception of it. And I'm not necessarily saying I agree with this is that the purpose of the algorithm is to increase people's capacity to access content that they find desirable and interesting. And that would be their counter argument. So
0: as someone who's listened to this conversation with an immediate practical problem in several ways, I think a lot about my son who's 13. I think about the way, because I make children's television, that we use social media to promote the show, to get messages out about the show. and, And that as someone who young people might have an interest in through the show, what my endorsement or just being present on certain platform means. I feel like you've both taken me on a very particular and very useful journey. So let me see if I've sort of got got the the shape of what you're saying. I think I came into this thinking, I don't want my son to get groomed on the internet. I don't want him to lose money. I don't want him to get publicly shamed or disgraced. And very much my conversations with him have been to sit him down and go, look, I have many more followers on Twitter than you. Let me tell you how this works. Let me tell you what happens. Let me tell you the scams. Let me tell you who's going to interact. And while some of them are sort of interesting anecdotes and, and he, he pays a little bit of attention, I think in general he regards me the way most 13-year-olds regard their parents, which is sort of as, um, you know, benignly, but that I am a kind of blundering wally who doesn't really know exactly how the world works. And I remember that feeling with the lectures on drugs at school We all knew people who were taking drugs. And then we get these lectures where it was like, you'll die the instant you take a pill. And we're like, that's just obviously not true. And so at that point, we stopped listening to the information altogether because you you could tell that it had an an element of, of moral panic. So it feels like you're saying, if you sit and listen, you will understand what people's concerns and problems are, which is hugely important. That sounds obvious, but as a parent, and often as a sort of an adult, it's difficult to do with younger people. And secondly, this very beautiful idea that there is this huge distraction around the conversations on social media that miss the point that you are being exploited, is a strong word, but I think it's not unreasonable to say you are a vehicle to make money. I, my brother has a friend who uses the phrase, um, strip mining the human body for coin. And if you're talking to people about public health issues, the issue of exploitation, saying a large company is making a lot of money out of your your problem or your your interaction with this thing that as a conversation becomes a very different way of engaging c- compared to just going here's a warning here's a way it might harm you it feels to me like i would literally sit down in front of a school children or in front of my own child or indeed in my own head and think about this differently have i captured a bit of what you're trying to say
3: i think so Zanja. Yeah. and the only thing i'd probably say is it's and what i was trying to convey to rochelle maybe not very well but is it's not just exploitative, it also allows you to self-actualize as well. You know, the internet and social media, you, you can use it in a way that really benefits you. It's not an entirely exploitative thing. And this is why it makes everything so difficult because it does both at the same time. And that's the thing I think that makes it really hard to navigate because think how many people I've worked with young people particularly who've just found social media to be so powerfully wonderful for them. Like an autistic child. I've worked with a lot of autistic young people who are at home and they don't want to go out. And their interactions through their games and their online activities. It's a lifeline. It's saved their life. Some of them are now making money using the internet, doing coding and things like that. And then other people, young people I've met who were self-harming and they found a community online. This contrasts with the general media narrative that the social media creates self-harm we don't have good evidence of that but what we do have good evidence of is that sometimes young people use social media to connect with others who are self-harming and that's really helpful to them so it can do those things but it can also be a great way for you to make a business or make money for yourself so in a way the internet has allowed people who are less powerful than maybe in previous generations to be seen to be heard and actually to have a capacity to gain resources for themselves but as you also said Zan it does do the other stuff it does exploit you it does sell your data it does treat you as a commodity at some level it doesn't tell you where that data's going which is extremely problematic isn't it and really pernicious it can involve cyberbullying which can be awful so it's that's why I think Ella and I are so pressing the idea of conversing with young people and thinking together with them because I think it's really hard to get across those sort of binaries. And they are extreme binaries, aren't they? Who are just telling. Because exactly like you said, Zan, teenagers will then go, what do you want about me? You know, you don't understand. And then they might switch off. But if you talk... To them, I
0: don't you're... want to be told. I don't want to yeah, be told. Exactly. Like my brother tells me what to do. I don't listen. That's,
3: <laughs> exactly. You know. Yeah. So it's, I don't know. It's just think, And the more I talk about it, the more complicated it gets in my mind. It's, uh, It's really tricky. What do you think, Ella?
2: Yeah, I want to say I want to just drop... A couple of things in as well, which is that in my kind of early experience with social media, which was really in the age of like fandoms where you would form communities based on groups and people that you loved. I made some really good and really important friends through that and at a time where I didn't necessarily feel like I really connected with people at school. And there's, you know, there's ups and downs to that because maybe me making friends online meant that I tried less hard with people at school, we'll never know. It is the way it is. And throughout also my own experiences of quite severe distress, social media was in some ways very helpful for that and in some ways slightly harmful for that. I think, you know, it's, as we've said before, it's complex. But the one thing I will say is the better I felt, the less I've wanted to use it. And I don't know what that means. And I have thought, because of things I've seen on social media, because of posts, that I'm never going to be good enough, that I'm never going to be okay. But I also have found communities, an introduction into Buddhism and an introduction into maybe the idea that I'm perfectly imperfect and, you know, that I'm perfect and I could do with a bit of work, which is currently my favorite one. So I think that there's... (laughs) You know, there's there's a there's a risk and there's a danger, but yeah, I just want to go back back again to the fact that it's not it's not social media, it's the system behind it. And I think maybe this is the point that I would sort of want to end on is that social media can, I think this is perfect, disrupt that system. If used um, intentionally and yes. carefully, it can disrupt it. But what I feel like sometimes I see. Do you now, want to
0: host this podcast?
2: <laughs> I'll take it. Yeah, I'll, I'll do your job. <laughs> <laughs> you take
0: care of it, you get my.
2: <laughs> but what I think I sometimes see in activist spaces, especially on social media, is a sort of falling into the, what well, I'm, I'm, I might just term, which I'm sure I've stolen from somewhere, a sort of ego trap where. Because social media is all about the individual, you know, it's a one person's profile, it's how many followers we have, it's how many likes we get, it's all about engagement with us as an individual or as an organisation, as an entity. There is, there's a trap that all that social media will do, ultimately, is feed into that sense of individualism rather than a healthy sense of being an individual in community. And if we can harness social media to bolster our sense of community over our own sense of ego i think we can use it to disrupt it's it i think it's just time will tell and however we use it will tell
0: it's so good i, I love it you both have just kind of led us very beautifully to the idea of disruption which is what we're so interested in disruptive thinking everywhere so not just in public health so we always ask everyone that comes on the show what piece of anything art music poetry literature uh what tiktok post what anything has disrupted your perspective and it it could be something that's incredibly meaningful to you or something that briefly shook you up today ella you can go first
2: i have a line from the heart sutra which is a Buddhist text. And this is a line that has, every time I read it, it disrupts my ego. It disrupts the idea that I have a fixed sense of self. And that is that form is emptiness
3: and emptiness is form.
0: That's wonderful. Thank you for sharing that, Ella. Chris, what have you got?
3: Well, I'm not going to be able to beat that, Zand. <laughs> okay, so I'm always struck by James Baldwin's writing, and as someone who's working in the education sector, and Ella and I have worked in Newham Borough for many years now with young people who are mostly black, black Caribbean, Asian descent, for example, there's really diverse heritage. And I just love his work about how the worst thing in society is ignorance allied with power. And I think... One of the things that we're really trying to do at States of Mind, and we haven't really, I haven't, I don't think I've spoken to Ella and Bea about this at States of Mind, but it's something that's always at the core of my thinking is that there's so many things about, things like social media, for example, that people don't really talk about, don't necessarily understand, and that includes young people. And that is allowing some of these extremely powerful groups of human beings who maybe don't have the best motives to come into the system and disrupt it on their behalf rather than our behalf. And I think that's the same in the education system and it's the same in politics so i guess for me dan in answer to your question it's around trying to help people through conversation not through coercion to figure out where we're ignorant what we don't know and then to try and come up with our own conception of what knowing is and it's going to be different for everyone and from that position i think we can really disrupt and we can disrupt using a form of what Michael Barzon, who wrote an amazing book called The Power of Giving Away Power, calls constellation leadership. And that is, rather than the pyramidal structure of leadership, assuming that everyone who's taking part in this conversation or this organization is a star that shines brightly and less brightly at different times around different issues, different topics. And if you can bring that constellation together and position everyone as active participants, and try and figure out different ways of knowing together. I think that's where you can disrupt. And I feel like that's the journey we're on at States of Mind and I'm certainly on as an individual. This is why it's my favorite question. for the podcast because I just sort of feel like yeah yeah, yeah. we steal we just, I steal just it we just steal it, it. I, it's
1: not steal, steal all these yeah we don't steal what we're doing <laughs> is sort of making we are we are building a collective of disruptors absorbing
3: thanks so much for inviting us it was oh so goodness. wonderful to talk to you thank you everyone thanks guys thanks so much cheers bye
1: you've been listening to public health Disrupted this episode was presented by me, Rochelle Burgess, and Zan Van Telekin, produced by UCL Health of the Public edited by Annabelle Buckland at Decibel Creative. Our guests today were Dr. Chris Bagley and Ella Gregory.
0: If you'd like to hear more of these fascinating discussions from UCL Health of the Public, make sure you're subscribed to this podcast so you don't miss future episodes. Come and discover more online and keep up with the school's latest news, events, research, there's all kinds of things going on. So just Google UCL Health of the Public. This This podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds, This podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds, bringing together UCL knowledge, insights, and expertise through events, digital content, and activities that are open to everyone.